Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, where I've had the honor of serving for over 10 years now. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know I've talked with people from every state, from Florida to Alaska, Hawaii to Maine, from U.S. Senate to school board. And that sounds like from top to bottom, but every election is important. There are 500,000 elected offices in this country. And from my experience in talking with people on this podcast, the most important politics are happening on the state legislative level, and that's the politics that people are not paying enough attention to. And one state that kind of um, I've gone to before, like I said, every state, um, it seems every two and four years when they talk about national polls, it's like, oh, 50-50 no matter who is running. It could be peanut butter jelly sandwich against uh, meatball hoagie, and it'd still be 50-50 uh, vote probably, at least in the polls. But it's a great state. And a great person we're talking to here. His name is Max Carter, Assemblyman in Nevada. We're going to talk about Nevada and what made him run. So, Max, uh, thanks for talking today. Uh, thank you for inviting me on your podcast. So, um, I always start with, you know, everyone that comes on here, they ran for office or they've been deeply involved. That's not all candidates or people like that. But have you always been politically involved? Or did something tip your mind, whether it's an election or an event, that made you go from, yeah, I'll vote, to I'm going to do something more than just voting? You know, I've always been involved, but more at the lower level. Mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, I was a, a union business agent for the IBEW, and I was the guy that made things happen, literally and figuratively, on the ground. They never sent me to Carson City, which is our capital. So I was always that, that lower-tier, lo loyal foot soldier person. And then... Um, like all too many people know that something traumatic or tragic happens in your life and all of a sudden your whole trajectory changes, you know, and, and that's what happened to me. So, uh, I've been involved with union politics for a long time, whether it's SCIU and the nurses, uh, knowing people who are teachers, IBW is huge in this area, AFSME, et cetera. Um, there are a lot of great members who are unions, but what did something make you go from being, you know, active in your union to more involved in the political aspect of that? Well, you know, it, it, it kind of, it's a bit indated, but seven years ago, I lost my wife traumatically mm. and, and tragically, unexpectedly. She fell from a horse mm. and we'd been married 30 years. And I'm one of those guys that was lucky enough to marry young and marry right. And it destroyed my whole world. I should be, as I put it, I should be, retired right now, sitting on the beach with my wife, being the best grandma and grandpa that ever was. But all of a sudden, that dream was taken away from me. And um, grief hit me hard. Mm -hmm. And when this seat came open, my friends in labor reached out to me. They tried to talk me into it a couple of times over the years, and I'd always said, no, 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 I know where I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. This time, there was no reason not to say yes. And a very good friend who was a state senator sat me down and had a conversation and helped me dispel that imposter syndrome stuff that I think that everybody deals with. Mm -hmm. And um, I made the decision to run, and I did. Um, I saw that a lot of the stuff that I'd ended up being involved with, trying to make sense and find purpose again, um, tied right in and, and has set me well in my legislative 
journey or whatever. I don't really like that term, but yeah, legislative experience. You know, um, before we start recording, we talked about someone else I'd had in the podcast from Nevada, Edgar Flores. Um, he's close to in the same area of Nevada too. And, um, when we talked, he talked a little bit about Joe Biden coming and the, the connection with his father. And, you know, one of the things we noticed with the president, and even when I think I was talking with Edgar about him is how grief has kind of impacted Joe Biden's politics and a lot of other people's politics. Um, what, how have you seen, whether it's from you or from the others in the legislature or even just from the union or Kim community, how the power of grief can lead to something positive. Well, I, I've personally experienced the fact that, that grief is a shared experience that can help break down that, that, that artificial wall between party lines. Mm -hmm. And, um, I firmly believe it humanizes you and it makes it to where you're more willing to be open and understand somebody else's position. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how I see things. And, and I've personally experienced that, that phenomenon. And, and obviously you've experienced politics on the outside and now the inside. Um, what, when you got in more involved, was there anything that surprised you? Because people who are listening, they might consider running for office. What were, was there anything that just, wow, I wasn't prepared to understand this or these kind of people. It was, what was kind of any of the, um, the homecoming or the honeymoon period where you had to like, wow, I have to learn these five things to really get up to speed. Well, you, you, you know that that was one thing. And I got, when, when I was lucky enough to get the endorsement of the assembly democratic caucus, you know, they set me down and were talking about, okay, fundraising, mm -hmm. knocking on doors, um, dealing with, um, con people that want conflict no matter what. And, Honestly, I realized that's you just explained, you just defined my my experience working and being active within my union. So all of those were easy um, the, and familiar. What got me, it was actually after I was elected, and our state does a very good job now of training new legislators. And they do it in a bipartisan fashion. Take all of us newbies. And you're in a room for a week, basically. And it was very, I, I assumed that just like national politics, state politics were so polarized that there was, you know, it was just whoever's in power gets what they want. And it was a, it was a very pleasant surprise that no, at least in our state house, it's, it's bipartisan and we work together. Even in our house, where the, the Republicans were in a super minority, those that chose to still had a say and could be involved in policy. I was, that was, it made me smile when that happened. And I've got some very, very good friends on the other side of the aisle that were developed during the session. Yeah, and, and this is an audio podcast, so people aren't seeing your picture. They'll see it when I share it a little bit. Um so, you know, like you said before we started recording, people you people look at you and they won't necessarily know that you're a Democrat, which is unfortunate that we have that kind of bias about people in politics. But do you think that your background helps you to bridge those divides, maybe get some ideas that might be missed by talking to people across the aisle that um, maybe they're not able to have as good of relations in, um, with other people? Well, you know, yes. And, and it comes to, I think, it, first off, I... 
I, I look back now reflectively, you know, I'm 59 years old and see that the, the seeds were always there. But when I went through training to be a union organizer, you learn to make connections and you learn to listen. And if you just listen, there's always a connection there. Too many of us, and I can fall into that trap too, only hear what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. But if you listen, there's more. we all have more alike than we do indifference you know and, and that's that's a, a a skill that's helped me a lot i mentioned i don't know if i mentioned or not that i'm very 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 involved in the trauma world with an organization called tip trauma intervention program that goes to scenes where somebody a traumatic experience at the invitation of first responders and um their definition of a traumatic scene is usually means there's a loved one lying dead on the ground mm-hmm. and being there to support those people. And you learn very rapidly that what comes out of your mouth means nothing. It's what you listen to mm. and just be present and listen and that you can make that connection by listening. And that's what I've found also. It does me well in the political world yeah. is that that thing of, okay, we've met, we've talked a little bit, now consciously shut up and listen and you can find connections and you can find mutual mutual goals mm-hmm. yeah i it reminds me um another person who kind of gets uh biased because of his look is my u.s senator john fetterman and he's really brought mental health issues to the forefront through his own personal struggles um bring up legislation he had like, started a mental health caucus in the senate and I've talked with a number of people in state legislatures now on the podcast, and, that, and I've been bringing that up for the last few months. Um, have you talked with your colleagues, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, about yeah you know, how to take their mental health seriously? Because you're talking about traumatic issues, but you know I, I've seen how you can feel very depressed and discouraged if you think an issue is important, like um, violence in schools, or you're, you think about like not passing your health care bill or education or something. And that can weigh on you, like, and but people might not consider it a mental health issue um, because for whatever reason. So, have you used your experience to kind of help your colleagues? You just took and hit on one of the big things that, that also I didn't expect in the legislature. Um, I'm very, very active in the mental health world here in Las Vegas, also, and I was um, co-sponsor on a piece of legislation trying to legalize psychedelic therapy in our state. Mm -hmm. And um, after I'd signed on, I found out that my psychiatrist helped write the bill. And I've personally benefited from psychedelic therapy. And, um, And so I testified, and my Senate colleague that that was the co-sponsor, she, when I went in, she says, Max, Now I want you all to listen to Max. And so I was the first one in the presentation and I just told my story and somehow out of my head, it's something that I heard along the way. I said something about, you know, I believe in healing loudly Mm -hmm. and that's why I'm telling you my story. And the feedback from that was huge. I had county commissioners reach out and go, Max, I listened to you. And I now I realize that I need to be more open and honest with both myself and the public about my mental health. 
And it was just one after the other after the other to where now, usually when I get asked to be on a podcast, they want to talk to the heel loudly guy. Yeah. I'm like, how did this happen? It happened from being open and honest about the struggles I have, you know, from depression to PTSD to, you know, all of that stuff. And that just being open that, yes, I experienced this. And yes, I'm trying, I'm doing these things to help me. And you can too. That's really, that's really helpful. And, and, um, and one of the things that's also powerful you're reminding me is, is state legislators. You obviously you're able to have that power from your trauma and grief and being open with it, like you said. But um, I, like I said at the start of this, I think that the most important politics are happening at the state level. Have you learned from your experience, whether it's from being in the union or now being with the assembly, um, what kind of power the assembly has and the legislatures have in any state that regular people should understand better? Just that, that, that we have the ability in the state legislatures to drive policy, even at a national level. You know, you look at our state, and we were the first state to pass, and it was uh, a woman who's now on staff in the White House, Ivana Kinsella. She was a state senator here, and she got the first in the nation um, insulin price control legislation passed. Mm -hmm. And that started a ripple effect to where now we see that basically what she did in Nevada or what the state legislature did in Nevada is now national policy. And it started right here in our state. And it's also things like psychedelic therapy Mm -hmm. that states, yes, there is still a federal issue with the classification of these substances, but... States can choose not to enforce and criminalize and and impose penalties on the use of these substances. And it's happening everywhere. It hasn't happened in Nevada yet, but it's rippling through Massachusetts, California, and a lot of other states that I really see that it's going to lead to more more openness, kind of like in the cannabis world, where... Why are we locking people up because of using a plant-based medicine? And we're seeing now cannabis. One of the big drivers at the state le- at the national level is doing away with these federal, you know, with its federal classification. Where did that come from? From the state saying, you know what, you people in D.C. got it wrong. We know better, and we're seeing it go across the nation and. Heck, you go into most dispensaries here in Las Vegas now, and the day after the truck arrives, the edibles and the and the ointments are gone, not because it's hippies and kids out getting stoned. It's senior citizens that have found an alternative to opioids, senior citizens that have discovered that they can get back their ability to sleep at night by something that or their whole life what they were told was a gateway drug mm-hmm. just was never true. But it took the states to start that ball rolling. Yeah, I've heard people, a state uh, state legislature in Texas, legislators talking about there, my state senator here in Pennsylvania, Amanda Capaletti, um, I found out that the someone I talked to from Texas was going to visit with her 
because she was talking about the same issues. And then so it's happening on a state legislative level and it's almost like if enough states are doing it, well, then it's going to be too overwhelming for the federal government to ignore it. You hit the nail on the head that state legislatures have the ability to, like in the insulin world, start the ball rolling or in the cannabis world, make it to where it's such a big snowball that the, that the federals, that the feds can't ignore it any longer. Well, one other you thing keep kicking the can down the road. Yeah, and one other thing that's really interesting about Nevada, from what I've learned, is it was the first state to have a majority female legislature that that had not happened any other state. You and I are, as Homer Simpson would say, straight white men, age eighteen to whatever. The world's made for us, and that's great and all. But um, you know, for someone like you and me, uh, on the people you talk with, what do you think the power is of Nevada having that kind of representation and being the first in the nation? to have a majority female legislature, what does that do for recruiting other candidates? And and maybe is, is there a positive for men as well to see like, hey, this is, you know, how we can improve things in general? Well, on a, on a granular um, societal level, I'll tell you that sitting in a caucus room that is majority women, I can see that there's one or two of my male colleagues that it's, it's unfamiliar and they're a little uncomfortable. Me, my wife was a badass mm-hmm. and um, ruled the roost. And I've got three amazing sons be, that, that that are married to strong women because they were raised by a strong mother. Mm-hmm. And I see now, for me, it was like being at home. But I see that it does just that. It empowers the lobbyists. I think that it's leading to to opening up the good old boy network in the lobbying community and stuff. Because now it's not just, oh, let's go smoke a cigar or let's go to the bar. That the, the, the female majorities are saying, no, we're going to talk. Let's talk in my office. Mm-hmm. I don't need you to take me to the bar to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I see that it really is transforming the lobby core. So that's one of the huge benefits because they're bringing, they're not going to put up with that stuff, the good old boy stuff. You know, and, and listening to you and you talk about uh, grief and mental health and also about respecting the power of women in office and, and everything like that. I have two young boys. They're, my oldest is going to be 10 in a couple days. By the time this is uploaded, it'll probably be 10. Um, and my youngest is 8. And I already see kind of the influence of a lot of negative things, pod like videos on YouTube, other kids. They might not realize it's negative, but just misogyny or bad jokes or other things, what do, you, what do you think is the importance of, as a grandfather and a father, uh, the kind of examples you're setting for your family and for others in the community? I think it shows that, that it, doesn't, it doesn't reduce your, your sense of masculinity for a woman to be in power. And that there's, some, there's, there's a lot of women that they outshine anybody. Our our Senate Majority Leader, um, Nicole Catanzaro, that woman had a, during the middle of session, had a baby on Saturday in the middle of session. And on, I believe it was Wednesday afterwards, she was on the Senate floor with that baby in a sling on her chest, putting down the opposition and defending bills and putting people in their place and being in control. Mm-hmm. It was like such a powerful moment that this woman with a child she had just given birth to is in the middle of the budget fights 
and not losing in the budget fight fights on the floor of the Senate. It's impressive. And when people see that, not only does it, okay, girl power inspire the next generation. I made sure my granddaughters watched it. But it also sends that message to, to young men that, you know what? It's okay. It doesn't threaten you that that, that person is powerful. And I think it sends a message across the aisle, too. I, and I, be, oh, I'm sorry. Because... People, you know, unfortunately, on the on the conservative side, that that um, I can't think of a single um, ethnic minority on the on the the Republican side in our legislature. There are several women, mm-hmm. but these conservative, powerful men are are discovering sometimes the hard way <laughs> that they have to. They're being drugged, kicking and screaming into the twenty first century. Because they have to respect, and and not saying they disrespect, but they have to accept that a woman can be in charge. Yeah, one thing you did mention, though, that's very important is the budget process. And I know from my experience in government relations here in Pennsylvania, looking at other states as well, the most important thing a, a state legislature does annually is the budget. You may pass some other bill that year that you think is more important that particular year, but the budget, everything goes through there. And regular folks don't understand the budget process, not because people are dumb, just you have to be really involved to really understand it. You've been, uh, you've probably paid attention to the budget from a union perspective, from the outside and from the inside. What are things you think that the general public voters should know about the budget process and maybe how they can influence it for the better? Well, you know, one of the big epiphanies for me is it leaning into this that that you can you can get you can work your butt off get any piece of legislation you want passed and signed if ways and means are in the in the in our assembly or finance in the Senate don't allocate funds to it it's it's worthless mm-hmm. and so that that you end up having to, and I had one that I had to take and work with state agencies to negotiate down and get the fiscal note off of it to even get a chance of it seeing the light of day. And in order, you know, our state must have a balanced budget. We're mm-hmm. not allowed to to um, sign a die without having a balanced budget. So there's a lot of negotiations there. And if you're going to take and do something to spend money, you have to make not only the case for the validity and the need for your legislation, but then you've got to take and lobby and convince those money committees that it truly is worthy of the allocation. So if that was a big eye-opener for me. Yeah, so if you're someone from the outside, whether you belong to a union or you're concerned about the environment uh, or something like that, what... Um, I think a lot of people, because of the news, I don't think it's necessarily true, but people will just become very cynical watching the news and then they like, they become, they feel so powerless that they give up their power. Like they don't go and do anything. Um, and because the news feed makes it feel like you can't get anything done. What, if someone's listening and they want to be involved and make a difference, what would be the best way you think that they could do it? Um, including timing wise. Well, I'll tell you that, that, I look back now, and the path I took is the path I'd recommend. I didn't do it intentionally, but, you know, I made it to where I got involved in the community. I was involved in all sorts of stuff, my kids' schools and all of that, and that 
that feeling that you get from giving back to your community helps lead to more. Next thing I know, my county commissioner notices. And I develop a relationship with my county commissioner, and then all of a sudden I'm appointed to an advisory board that everybody thinks, oh, wow, it must be hard. The reality is, is most elected officials, especially like at your level, are desperate for community members to serve on these advisory panels and boards. And it's a way to find out, okay, I like doing this, or no, I'm not willing to sacrifice this much of my time. And so that would be the big thing is get to know at the lowest, at that, I say lowest level, and that's no denigration on you. Because it actually, I assume it's probably like yours, arguably the most powerful electeds in our state are our county commissioners in the county I live in because it's huge. Mm -hmm. Um, Got more real world influence than the legislature that only meets every, every other year. But get to know your the people that are representing you. The truth is, is most of us welcome conversations with people that we represent. I crave that. Mm-hmm. And that's really the first step is find out who your representatives are and call them. And if you've got an issue, don't be afraid to pester. I know you probably hate that, but, you know, pestering is what gets stuff done. Uh, yeah, I'm actually very happy when someone stops me. One, it means that someone recognizes who I am. Uh, like, So I'm happy when that happens. And then two, I ran for office, like I'm sure you did, to help people. And I can't help you if I don't know there's an issue. Because a lot of times people just say everything's fine. And then, oh, Max said that um, the potholes are, aren't being filled on this street. Well, okay, I can I can put in a call. I can do something on that. I can at least try. And that's a, that's a, good, a good feeling. That was another huge thing that I wasn't expecting. We had, actually, it was a rabbi that wanted to take and do a Hanukkah celebration in this gated community, and it was pretty low-level catching some pushback and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's a larger community here in my district. And lo and behold, had federal delegation that would answer the phone. Mm -hmm. And that we were able to, it was no, it was not anti-Semitic or anything like that. It was just a resistance to change. And through contacts, we were able to open eyes and had a wonderful Hanukkah celebration that has the potential to become a an annual event in a multicultural community. Mm-hmm. And who knew I could do, I had the power to call them. And it's not, that seems like little, but it's huge to your community. And also, when you said talking, um, wanting to be a true representative, that's not what you said, but that's what I heard. Mm -hmm. When I started campaigning on all of my literature, my personal cell phone's on it. Mm -hmm. Would I recommend that to everybody? That's a personal choice. Mm -hmm. It works for me. Um, And also, my home address. I'm representing a district that I want people to know that, in fact, I said that a lot, that... If you're if if you're if I expect you to answer the door when I knock on it to talk to you about policy, I should be willing to answer the door when you knock on my door. Mm-hmm. And um, I've had people come to my house and have a pleasant conversation. Um, some people that doesn't work for, and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, our structure we have no permanent staff. We don't even have an office in our hometown. Mm-hmm. So your office kind of ends up being your front yard. 
And um, I like it that people know where I live because I love my community and I want to be part of it. Yeah, I, I, anytime I go around, I tell people where I live. I don't necessarily invite them to my, but I would, you know, I'm happy to meet with them. I tell them where I, I want. One thing I like about my community is my kids walk to school and I usually walk with them. So I can see four or five people I know just in a few blocks walking back and forth from school. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't know about the value of community service is having that connection. Well, and you know, and I'll tell you this too, that I obsessively knocked on doors. I'm mm-hmm. not very good at asking for help. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm a working man. So when I, when I stepped in to run, I was like, well, what do I do? I work. So in the cycle, I knocked on 6,000 plus doors personally. Mm-hmm. And the, the effect of, of having a constituent meet the candidate is huge. But also I learned so much, like even about how I'm perceived even before I was a candidate. Within a two-mile radius of my house, apparently every schoolgirl in this two-mile radius makes their parents drive by my house because I've got a pony that was born wild <laughs> on an island off the coast of Virginia, and they all make their their parents drive them by my house at least once a week so they can wave to my pony, Milky. So you're saying the success, the the, the secret to success in politics is to get a pony. I, I, you know, I'm working on painting my logo on my pony's side and walking her, making her go knock doors with me. That's that's not probably won't do that, <laughs> but but yes, it's what 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 I'm saying actually, yes, that, but more importantly, be involved and mm-hmm. connected to your community. Well, it's like Little Sebastian in Parks and Recreation. Have you seen that? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, it's my favorite, one of my favorite shows. So um, I did start this by saying that the politics in Nevada are often like fifty fifty or 41, 49, 51. Whatever direction, it's, I, I've been involved in politics for over 20 years. It feels like it's been that way all the time, even as the parties and the issues have changed. Um, have what, what, what do you think are, will be the most important things politically in Nevada this year that may shift the election either way that people should pay attention to? Are you talking about a state level or are you talking about on the national Well, we got a Senate race in Nevada this year, right? And then we have the presidency. And also, you got your assembly races, so... I imagine there's some issues that kind of encapsulate all of that as this is going to be important and we need to really, we can't ignore these issues and we got to, here's what we got to do. Well, and I'll tell you, and this affects my district and Mm -hmm. it affects all of, especially the, the urban districts is the, the problem of home ownership and the rise of these corporate investment companies buying up. We just had a big news article about, that this one investment group bought up tons of houses mm-hmm. in the Las Vegas Valley. And, you know, it's become a federal issue because it's it's slowly turning our country into a rental society yeah. where people, where investment groups are profiting off of working men and women rather than it, it's, it's eroding the ability to um, live that, have that American dream of home ownership. Mm-hmm. And it's a national level, it's a state level, it's a community level. Knocking on doors, I'd have people step out and be upset because 40% of their block 
were rental properties. Yeah. And renters are good people, but there's just a different incentive to keep the house up and stuff. Oh, yeah. And um, and the frustration that, uh, and, you know, growing up, uh, unless you, you, you tend to be two things. Either you stay in the familiar area or you change completely. Mm-hmm. And so now it's getting harder and harder for parents, sons, and daughters to be able to buy a house in their neighborhood. It's, it's almost impossible now. Yeah. You know, I was able to, I had a, I was a, a stagehand working on the strip and I was able to buy my first house at 21 years old. That's unheard of That's now. Cool. Yeah. But it was pretty common back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially in Vegas, it was, if you were a valet Parker, you made big bank, but a culinary worker that had with a family, you know, once they got established, they could afford to purchase a home. Not anymore. And it's because we have these artificially inflated prices because here in Vegas, they come in with all cash offers and just buy the houses out from underneath people. And then the option is, is you go rent it. And in reality, you're paying the mortgage for this investor and getting nothing out of it. That's the biggest, biggest issue I see. Yeah, I know. I, I understand completely. I've read about the, uh, the corporate ownership of homes and like neighborhoods, whole communities being bought out like that. We see a lot of growth in our area. And I know I can't sell my house. I mean, I could, but um, my mortgage rate's so low that if I sold my house, I'd have to buy a much more expensive house at a bigger mortgage rate. So there's dis- a huge, excuse me, disincentive to sell my house. And I don't want to, but um, as a result, people are staying in their houses longer than they might want to. And the new homes that are being built, like, I can't afford that down the street. Like, <laughs> And that's everything. That It's not like the most modest things are things way above what I would pay for and aren't really fit for my family. So it's a, it, it does seem like something where when you see a lot of these controversial, cultural, or um, you know, hyped up issues, that these are the kinds of things that President Biden or the um, people running for Senate or House, they could really spend their time focusing on this and probably flip a lot of middle-of-the-road voters. I, I agree 100%. You know, that, that that's one that I'm looking into now. I don't, I don't have the answers. You know, I say, well, if it's not on owner occupied, let's quadruple their property taxes. Well, that's not quite legal. You can't get there. But I'll tell you that even the realtors in this state are like, yes, we need to do something about this. And um, there's other the other one that you just with Biden is the the issue of medical debt Mm -hmm. and trying to take in, keep it from having people lose their houses or have their credit destroyed because of a leukemia diagnosis. Yeah. That's horrible. That's horrible. And we need to take in, reform the medical debt industry and the debt collection industry. It's that hidden thing that's almost as predatory as payday loans. And we need to work on it. Yeah, I know. I'm sure you know from your own family, your own experience, how many people have been more scared of the bill than they have about the diagnosis. Uh, I had an issue. My son fainted at a local convenience store and it was dehydration but they're like oh we'll get an ambulance we'll go to the hospital and i knew he was okay like not that it's okay to faint and get dehydrated and my thought was if this was at home he wouldn't be going to the hospital because he like got up and he was drinking i was like this is going to cost a lot of money and i felt guilty about that 
But we were able to take care of it because we have an FSA and like it wasn't a burden to us because of my wife's um, account. But like that's the second thought I had. And we're not, you know, doing poorly. So I imagine you hear that all the time as, a, as, a, as an assemblyman. I do. And, and the, these things where people want it's shameful for, from my point of view. And I've been involved in the healthcare world. I've been a trustee on my union's health plan for 30, 20 years. And so I've seen the background side, and it I believe it's shameful that Americans have to take and think about that. Okay, you know, we hear about senior citizens rationing their pills and stuff. What you just described is the norm. It's not the exception. Mm-hmm. And nobody should be thinking about, especially when their child, thinking about economic issues when something's going on with their child. It's shameful that that thought even had to pop into your head. Yeah, and I'm sure you hear it all the time. And, and and hopefully, if you can find some sort of answer, even if it's not the best answer, it can become kind of the the seed for a federal answer as well. Um, so we've listened to all this. The podcast is called You Should Run. If people are listening, you've talked about politics from my level to your level to the presidency. All of it's important. Why would you encourage the next person listening that maybe they should run for office? Because it's a, it's a fulfilling way to be involved in your community. Yes, it can be brutal, but it doesn't have to be. And if you've got that spirit where you care about your community, you care about your neighbors and your fellow man, it's accessible and you should run. It's not as scary as it's painted out to be. Yeah, I agree. And you find that out pretty soon that if it's scary to you, it's probably scary to all the same people that you're in the room with because they're all imposters. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and that was my epiphany mm-hmm. was in the very first committee meeting. I'm sitting there and the, the head of our uh, state pension system, I'm thinking, man, I don't belong here. And she starts talking and she starts talking in uh, retirement and pension acronyms and i realize i'm the only one who knows what she talks about why because i've been on my pension my union's pension trust fund for 20 years Mm -hmm. so i knew what she was talking about nobody else did and that's the beauty of a citizen legislature yeah we're talking about education the man next to me knew more about it than i did and it kind of reminds me because you said you were a stagehand and um, when you're performing you're afraid that people will notice you messed up but the people who are watching they don't know the script for the most part. So they don't know if you mess up and just like in politics, you know, they don't, you, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what the other person does or doesn't know. So, you know, there's a lot of getting to know things and and you can feel dumb or you can feel smart, but um, sometimes you'll go into those things and not realize that you're the best expert in that room because of your own experience. You know, and on the flip side of that, I'll tell you that that's another big lesson that if you do decide to run, don't be afraid to admit, I don't know about that Mm -hmm. because that's how our system's set up, at least in Nevada with the citizens legislature, is there's people that'll help you understand it. And you make more of a fool of yourself when you try to fake it till you make it. Well, one thing people might want to know if they're listening is how to get in touch with you because you've had a lot of great things to say. If people are listening and they want to find your website, learn more, where would, where would you encourage people to go and learn more about you? Most, most active way is um, Carter, the number four, nv.com. And also I'm on 
I'm on Facebook. I'm on all of the social media platforms. That's a reality nowadays. Mm -hmm. And um, if you just look for Max Carter State Assembly, I'll pop up in Facebook. I'll pop up in Instagram. You'll get to see stuff about, yeah, Max teaches this fat electrician teaches yoga and all of all sorts of fun stuff, which that's the other thing you find out is just as messed up as you think you are. Everybody else is too. You're not that strange. Yeah, I tell my kids that a lot. They don't. They they haven't learned it exactly yet, but they will in time. So, uh, yeah. I really appreciate this, Max. Um, I'm really glad we connected, and um, I hope that if anyone else is listening, they're inspired, and maybe they will consider running for office too.